Welcome to the Street Smart Wisdom Podcast from Wisdom Feed. I'm Steve Stein. In this series, we talk to best-selling authors and thought leaders that are doing great work in the world of mindfulness, psychology, wellness, and creativity. Our mission is to bring ancient and contemporary ideas down to street level. Our goal, to bring you takeaways and insights that you can apply to everyday life. Enjoy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterListen.com. At BetterListen, we have hundreds of audios, courses, and programs available on demand to stream and download. As a listener to the Street Smart Wisdom Podcast, you are eligible for a free audiobook download. Just visit BetterListen.com forward slash free to get your download today. This episode of Street Smart Wisdom, we welcome Dr. James Doty, and we find out what makes him tick and do what we call here on the show his wisdom profile. He's the founder of C-Care at Stanford University. He's a pioneer in the study and subject of compassion. He's friends with the Dalai Lama, Eckhart Tolle, and many other prominent leaders in the movement of body, mind, spirit, wellness. Welcome, Dr. Doty. Hi there, we're here today with our friend, Dr. James Doty, and uh, kind of doing a wisdom profile to find out more about his great work. And uh, so, Dr. Doty, tell us who you are, you know, and, you know, what you do. But let's start with who you are. How would you define that, who you are? Well, hopefully, um, I would like to be perceived as a caring, kind human being. So if that can be the starting point, um, that's who I am, hopefully. That being said, in a more traditional sense, um, I'm a, a neurosurgeon on the faculty at Stanford University School of Medicine, and I'm the founder and director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, which is part of the School of Medicine, whose mission is to understand the neurosocial basis of compassion. And uh, the Dalai Lama is actually the founding benefactor. Um, And I've also been blessed to be the chairman of the Dalai Lama Foundation for several years. And um, while I am a non-believer, if you will, or an atheist, I'm also have been a senior advisor to the Council of the Parliament of World Religions. And Interestingly enough, uh, I have been blessed as well to have uh, relationships with many of the religious and spiritual living icons in the world. And uh, the interesting thing is that people will say, how is it possible if you're an atheist or a scientist to have these relationships? And what I always tell people is the nature of the work that I do which, if you will, is to scientifically, excuse me, demonstrate the value proposition of compassion in regard to mental and physical health 
actually aligns with what many spiritual and religious uh, um, teachings have uh, evolved, which uh, at the basis of essentially everyone is the importance of compassion to live a life and a meaningful life. And so on some level, you may say it seems strange, but on the other, uh, it makes perfect sense because oftentimes the actions that we have evolved to do as human beings relate to our evolution and the science of how our physiology and brain developed. Um, so in addition to those aspects of my background, uh, I have also been an entrepreneur, have been um, involved with a variety of uh, startups, one of which went public for $1.2 billion. Uh, I was the CEO of that for a period of time. And then I've also um, been involved in areas of venture capital and entrepreneurship. But probably the most important part of my story, which is germane here to why I'm talking with you, relates to what is a the truth for all of us is that who we are today is a manifestation of our past. And for myself, uh, I grew up in a challenging background with a father who was an alcoholic, a mother who had had a stroke when she was young, when I was young, and she was partially paralyzed, had a seizure disorder, and um, sadly was chronically depressed, attempted suicide numerous times, and Neither of my parents had gone to college. Uh, in fact, we were on public assistance my entire life. And uh, as a result of that situation, and we now know there's something uh, that has been researched and is called adverse childhood experiences, people, children who grow up in environments of poverty, uh, mental and uh, uh, health uh, issues, uh, drugs and alcohol abuse, uh, violence, um, et cetera, the likelihood of them recovering or being contributing members of society of society diminishes and profoundly. In fact, actually very few people get out of those environments. And one of the characteristics of those people who do get out oftentimes has to do with a seminal event or a seminal person uh, which changed their worldview. And at the time, as a child who was 12, I uh, had despair, anxiety, fear, probably what's now recognized as post-traumatic stress disorder from this chaotic uh, environment. Um, but at the age of 12, I walked into a magic shop, and the owner wasn't there, but his mother was there. And I described this woman as an earth mother type. She had a radiant smile. And... Uh, we were talking about um, judgment in the past uh, here. Uh, you know, when you come from either a minority background or one of poverty, uh, oftentimes you're judged and you carry this judgment uh, around. And, and this woman was non-judgmental. Uh, she had this incredible smile and an accepting smile. And what happened was um, her and I began talking. I went in there actually to look at magic tricks, but it turned out she knew nothing about the magic. She was the owner's mother. 
And she was just there while he was doing an errand. But uh, at the end of about 20 or 30 minutes of conversation with this woman, um, she looked at me and, sh and she'd asked me some really penetrating questions. She made me feel comfortable. And uh, after 20 or 30 minutes, she said, you know, I really like you. I'm here for another six weeks. If you show up every day, I uh, think I could teach you something that could change your life. And during that six-week period where I showed up between one to two hours every day, she taught me a meditation practice, uh, which, and remember this was in 1968, we didn't talk about mindfulness or um, a meditation, uh, we didn't even discuss neuroplasticity, we didn't believe it existed. You didn't, no? 12-year-old, you weren't, that wasn't on the uh, topic of discussion? Well, even in the neuroscience world, it, it, it was thought that the brain was immutable, and could not uh, uh, regenerate, or you could not sort of change your neural pathways. And so it was uh, interesting because clearly, uh, based on some experience this woman had, she understood intuitively that you could. And um, the reality for many of us is that <clears throat> we have this constant level of stress. We were talking about living in a digital age and practicing compassion, you know. We don't appreciate it, but many of us uh, are, uh, are stressed, anxious, depressed. In fact, there's an epidemic in the United States. One in four people will tell you that uh, when they're sad, lonely, suffering, they do not have a single person they feel comfortable talking with. So it's horrible. You know, uh, over 20% of people, adults, are on some sort of mood-altering medication. Um, so there is a crisis, and what ha the crisis is a manifestation of stimulation of this part of our autonomic nervous system called our uh, stress response or our um, sympathetic nervous system, and that gets engaged, and you're anxious all the time, and you're scared. So uh, that was the case with me. Um, so we began with this uh, woman, and... Uh, and she taught me how to relax my body, how to breathe. And just those actions in and of themselves shifted me from this stress mode and engagement of my sympathetic nervous system to the rest and digest mode, which is called our parasympathetic nervous system. And as soon as you're in that mode, essentially every aspect of your physiology improves. And from there, she taught me that I beat myself up a lot. I had created a narrative that I would repeat to myself about how I wasn't smart enough, I wasn't good enough, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought that narrative was me. I thought that what I was saying was me saying it. And the fact of the matter was that it was a false narrative that had been created and I had accepted it for truth. And it wasn't truth at all. And uh, so she allowed me to recognize this. And once I recognized it, she helped me change the narrative. And this is uh, this practice of going into this meditative state and not having an emotional response to this, this negative dialogue is, again, uh, very commonly practiced in mindfulness-based stress reduction. But the other aspect, though, that was critically important that is not explicitly done in those practices is that she taught me how to change the dialogue to be kind and compassionate and self-compassionate uh, <clears throat> so that I change the narrative to one of self-acceptance, one of deserving of love, et cetera. And it was from that that then she taught me then that everyone is suffering, 
that I wasn't the only one suffering, and that um, by reaching out and actually caring for others to being of service actually benefited me and my own physiology. And then the most powerful aspect from there was she taught me this uh, technique, which is now used uh, in uh, sports psychology, they call it visualization, but this was a technique to define an intention or goal, and then through repetition um, and sort of seeing it occur in my mind, which primes your subconscious, uh, it allowed me to be able to manifest uh, my own dreams and aspirations. And um, that period of time with that woman changed the trajectory of my life. And that's what I talk about in my book, Into the Magic Shop, uh, Neurosurgeon's Quest to Discover the Mysteries of the Brain and the Secrets of the Heart, um, which, as you know, uh, was a New York Times bestseller, is now in 40 languages, and it has received a number of awards. Um, so, uh, basically that's my background, if you will. Right, right, right. And, uh, so I find it, you know, fascinating that it adds a whole other level is like where you're doing this. You're not doing it on an ashram. You're not doing it, um, in the middle of Manhattan. You're doing it at, uh, Stanford university is your center. And that's, how many students are in that school? Oh, wow. I, it's not uh, actually that big of a university. It's, I think it's only 12,000, 16,000, something like that. It's, uh, and actually, uh, Stanford, uh, obviously, as you know, uh, has a wonderful reputation. And it probably has one of the largest endowments per number of students of any university in the world. Uh, it certainly um, stands with Harvard and Yale and a number of uh, the Ivy League schools. Uh, and a lot of extraordinary research is coming from there. And that's why having a center like this at Stanford uh, immediately gave credibility uh, to the nature of this work. Because there is an assumption that if someone at Stanford is doing this work, uh, it's real. And I have to say that while I would like to believe it was a reflection of my own wonderful reputation uh, that uh, resulted in this uh, increase in interest in the field of compassion, uh, really it has to do with the fact that the work that I do, the center, is at Stanford. Right. It's, uh, it gives credence to it. And, you know, being, you know, one of the things on this podcast, we call it street smart wisdom and, uh, you know, trying to bring ancient ideas or esoteric ideas down to street level. I think it's a different, it's not, it's not the streets of Manhattan or Brooklyn, but it, the science of this functions to make it real to, to people uh, I think, because it, it uh, you know, intuitively, you know that if you're a good person, you'll be more relaxed. Or if you're a more compassionate person, you're more open-hearted, and you model that in the world, people are nicer to you. Instinctually, okay, the world's a better place. Okay, peace, love, and all that good stuff. But when it gets down to hardcore science, uh, I think that, that that's a kind of a game-changer to me, because i when I was 12, I had my own rite of passage and challenges. 
and I've been on this path for a hundred <clears throat> fifty nine years and um, and when I hear the uh, telomeres or this you know oxytocin and you're more compassionate you your body actually changes that kind of validates what i what i've known intuitively like my my whole life so i love the science of all this woo woo stuff is it and it make, takes the woo woo out of it i think or it strengthens the woo woo it just depends on uh, how you look at it of course but uh um no i think uh that's true um and I think uh, if you look at my own personal story and background and trajectory and uh, that combined with the center, it sort of also um, makes it a more interesting story, frankly. Um, and uh, I've been blessed because I've gotten to be the face of some of this and allowed me to do you know, so many other things. Uh, that I wouldn't have been allowed and opened uh, sort of a, a, a path that probably at the age of 12, uh, I would say I could not have uh, fathomed. Um, getting back to the center, if you look at the work that we do, which uh, is typically collaborative with scientists, both at Stanford as well as all over the world, uh, and we utilize a variety of techniques, whether they're behavioral um, uh, utilizing functional magnetic resonance imaging, whether they're physiologic measures. We do a variety of those studies, but as part of what the center does, we also uh, have lecture series where we bring the leading scientists to Stanford to talk about their work. We hold conferences. Uh, we've had conferences, as an example, on compassion and business, uh, compassion and healthcare. And, uh, and just the science of compassion. And then uh, I have a series which I call Conversations on Compassion. And to me, this is actually one of the funnest things that I do because um, I get to sit on the stage with somebody I think is interesting who's led a life, if you will, of compassion and then talk to them for about an hour and a half or so about their lives and uh, the importance of compassion in what they do. And we've had Thich Nhat Hanh, Eckhart Tolle, Warner Earhart, the Dalai Lama, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, Sadhguru, Amma, the hugging uh, saint, and uh, as well as scientists and uh, actors, actresses, business people. And it's been an extraordinary group of conversations because, again, essentially every one of these people emphasizes uh, through their own example and their own lives how compassion has profoundly impacted them, those around them, and the world. Uh, how can people find out more about your work? Uh, you can go to the CCARE website, which is uh, www.ccare.com stanford.edu and there's also one for the book called into the magic shop.com and so at either of those places you can find a lot of information about our research and uh, and there's really a plethora of um, YouTube videos uh, about uh, the conferences we've had the talks the conversations on compassion and so uh, a lot of material.
Excellent. That, so that's, that's great to know. And your book is Into the Magic Shop, which is a great read. I recommend it highly. And uh, anything else before we say goodbye? I think we've covered most things. All right. Excellent. All right, uh, Dr. James Doty, thanks so much for your time. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. And it's always good to see you. Absolutely. See you and hear you. You've been listening to Street Smart Wisdom, the podcast from Wisdom Feed. You can follow Wisdom Feed on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. If you haven't, please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on iTunes. We appreciate your feedback. Join us next week for another Street Smart Conversation. Thank you for listening.